Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And joining me over the phone today to discuss all things wind energy is Lisa Lynn Nobes. Lisa serves as the executive director and spokesperson for the Wind Action Group, a national advocacy organization focused on policy issues associated with industrial wind energy development. She advises public and private entities on citing issues relative to wind energy development and writes about energy markets and public policy. Lisa, thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, so I think most people from the general public would be sort of surprised to find out that there is somebody who leads an organization that is either sort of skeptical or works at pointing out some of the issues related to uh, industrial wind development. So my first question is, just what, what piqued your interest in this subject and how did you come to be the executive director of the Wind Action Group? Well, thank you for that question. In fact, I am one of... I. I am quite certain we're hundreds of thousands of people across the country, despite the, the fact that the polls all claim 82 percent, 75 percent, very high level of, of very high levels of support for renewable energy and wind in particular. There, it, there really is a large contingent of people that do not appreciate the turbines. Um, so how I got involved with it, it actually dates back to 2004. I was in the process of um, uh, renovating an old farmhouse in a very rural community in northern New Hampshire. And I found out from a, a neighbor that there was a wind project proposed. And um, and I was it had really mixed reaction because I, at that time, and so many people then, so many people today, uh, have this vision that wouldn't it be wonderful if we could run the world on renewables? It just was like the perfect harmony of man working with nature. But then you start to look at the reality of it, and I found um, in my research, as we were evaluating whether this was best for the town, found so many people, fewer than many fewer than there are today, but there were people um, that had raised concerns. And so I, I joined with them, did a lot of research, and we ended up finding out pretty quickly that there was next to no information on the detrimental impacts of renewable energy, particularly wind. And so we ended up forming the Wind Action Group at that, that officially formed in 2006. And its purpose in life was and continues to be to educate people on um, what the issues are around wind energy. Yeah, I've had past guests who uh, have come on and talked about this issue. And certainly at IER, we've, our staff here has written quite a bit about renewable energy and some of the issues. Two of the problems that I've discussed on the show in the past have been the intermittency issue and then the land use issues. So I was wondering if you could just run us through sort of a refresher of those two issues but then also just talk about some of the other issues that most people, myself included, might not understand about wind energy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the intermittency issue is a big deal, and it's something the wind industry does not like to talk about. Uh, the bottom line is your, a wind turbine is not going to generate electricity except when the wind is blowing. There's no way around that. The, the discussion about whether or not we could have backup with the batteries, really there's no realistic opportunity for commercial scale or utility scale batteries, like what would be needed to back up a wind project. So 
Bottom line, if the wind's blowing, the energy gets produced. If the wind's not blowing or it's blowing at low levels, you're not getting the energy. And typically in across the United States in most areas, the wind is blowing the most at night uh, or, or, or certainly off-peak, so not the time of day and time of year when the energy is most needed, like today. It's a warm, at least in the Northeast, it's a hot um, and, uh, New, New England summer. If I were to go out there and see how much wind was being produced in New England right now, it would probably be very low. Um, and therein lies the problem. And interestingly, in 2008, the Department of Energy put out a report called 20% Wind Power by 2030. That was, that was the mantra. We're going to get to 20% of all of our electricity is going to come from, from wind energy by 2030. But in that report, it quite literally states, and I'm not kidding, no one wants to recognize it, it says that wind energy is not a capacity resource and should not be expected to be a capacity resource. In other words, the purpose of building wind energy was not to meet our energy needs. It was to displace fossil fuel when wind was blowing. So we have two systems. Effectively, what DOE was saying back in 2008 was we'll have two systems for meeting our, for electricity, one to meet our needs and one, when available, to displace our carbon emission, to, to displace fossil fuel, which will reduce carbon emissions. So intermittency is an issue. Now that I'm talking about 2008, that was written. That report came out on, under the uh, Bush administration. So just it was just before the Obama administration. In 2014, I believe it was 2013-14, they put out an update to that report. That language was completely eliminated. No surprise, the Obama administration is very supportive of renewable energy and wind. But it doesn't change the fact that it's true. It may, we may not want to admit it or say it, but it doesn't change. The, the fact is wind energy is not something we can run our economy on. With regard to the land problem, okay, this is an issue that not enough people are paying attention to. A wind project, is when we're talking about a power plant, that is driven by wind energy, wind fuel. The, fuel, the fuel is wind. We're talking about a power plant that literally is measured in square miles, square miles. If you have 600 acres to hold a, 20, a 1,200 megawatt nuclear power plant, and that, a lot of that is the buffer area around that nuclear power plant, and then you move over to a wind project, can you measure it in square miles? And you're getting a fraction of that cost, uh, of that capacity, and that capacity is, as, as we mentioned, you can't control it. That's a very big problem. So when you're building, when you're building a wind project, there, there are two issues that you have to deal with. One is that you cannot deliver the fuel to the wind power plant. You have to build the wind power plant where the fuel is present. That usually means somewhere on a ridge line, somewhere in the plains, somewhere where there aren't a lot of people, but there's a lot of wind. And the, so we're building up power plants long distances from load, and we are, which means a lot more transmission to deliver the energy, and we're spreading those turbines out to enormous amounts of land. And, uh, and most people on the coast, so here where it's so popular to see wind, you know, the advocates tend to be sort of in the cities and in the, in the coastal areas, and they're pushing for all this wind, they have, I would ask them to just drive through Texas 
And you're not driving for 20 minutes or 15 minutes and seeing turbines. You're literally driving hours before you get to an area where there are no turbines. Um, and that, that is what is happening in those areas, the environmental impact of building these turbines on square miles of land is enormous and very poorly understood. Yeah, I actually, unfortunately, might be one of those people who didn't appreciate the land use problem, even though I've heard the numbers about it. Um, I recently flew over, um, a friend of mine's a, a private pilot, I flew in his plane over the Thumb in Michigan, um, mm-hmm. and there's a huge wind project there, and I didn't have an appreciation of just how how much of that area was taken up by by wind turbines. And, uh, you know, I, I think you're right about that. First, I live in Arlington, Virginia, and it, it's something that I, you know, certainly pay attention to, obviously, given my day-to-day work. But um, until you actually see the scope of these projects, just hearing the numbers actually doesn't give you that great of an appreciation for the size of a lot of wind projects. That's absolutely true. And in fact, the wind industry has contributed to the misinformation or the misrepresentation or understanding or whatever word you want to use for it, uh, of how big these projects are. Because when they do a visual impact study where they're supposed to go out there and demonstrate what, what the, the prior to a project being built, they put a, a study together to show, simulate what the turbines would look like on the landscape. They'll, they'll take pictures of vast landscapes and then put like the five, six, ten turbines, or even 100 turbines, they'll put them in there, but they'll be very small on this mass landscape. So you don't really get a sense. You, cannot, you can never appreciate on a two-dimensional flat photograph what they look like. And whenever you see advertising where there are turbines showing, generally there's just one turbine spinning or two. It's not what, what the actual power plants look like. And, and, and one other point to, to add to that, the wind industry is famous for telling people, telling regulators that we can do all sorts of things between the turbines. There's space sufficient distance away from each other that we can live comfortably and wildlife can can live comfortably and migrate through comfortably through these turbine towers. And in fact, the, the impacts when we're talking about other kinds of problems with the turbines, the shadow flicker, the shadows that are cast by the turbines, the enormous amount of noise that is produced by these turbines, which people do not can, you cannot imagine it until you've lived with the turbines. Um, it's very you, you can't. People quite literally leave their homes. There are people in this country. There are people in Canada. There are people around the world who have abandoned their homes because turbines were built within 2,000, 2,500 feet of their home. You cannot live comfortably and enjoy your life if you're living surrounded by turbines. And, and that is the, the idea that we can live and farm and ways wild, and, and wildlife can and exist comfortably is simply not true. So I could imagine, though, that there might be somebody listening to this who hears what you're explaining about these problems and says to themselves, you know, this sounds a lot like what a lot of environmentalists say about just generally any sort of development project at all, that what you're describing is sort of a form of nimbyism um, or not in my backyard building. Um, how would you respond to that critique? About being a NIMBY? Yeah. That's, I mean, that is, 
that's a classic argument. And in fact, years ago when we started in this process, we were not. To, to, if we ever raised a um, concern about the turbines ruining the view sheds, <laughs> like no, we would be just laughed out of the rooms. Like, give us a break. That that we would be we would be completely self-serving in making an argument like that. And we don't own the view sheds that in the area where we live. And so we we really were forced to back off on that. But these days, people are much more tolerant of because they, they recognize that sheds matter, and where we live matter matters, and and the quality of the views. But but that being said, the NIMBY argument is it's it's when you take that on one on one. I mean, it's I'll often be accused of that, and um, and the, the the issue that we bring up are it's like okay, let's let's step back from this and identify what are the standards that are would make a project. Livable. If I could have to live with a project, we establish standards. We, do, do we want large, thick, dense shadows cast on our home so that it's like like it's a strobe light in our home? Many regulators will say no. We should be able to regulate that, and we'll make we'll establish standards for noise. Well, how loud should a turbine be when we're living in a rural area where the decibel levels at night are very quiet? They're down in the 20 decibels, maybe sometimes in the teens. Very very quiet. And you put a noise source in that area that is upwards of 45 decibels. That's like screaming at you. That's urban level noise that you're starting to hear in an area that's very quiet. So we don't. I guess what I'm saying is that we we don't really try to try to avoid the NIMBY debate and say no. Let's, this is about citing a development, in this case a power plant near where people live. Let's establish standards so that people are protected. And then, you know, that's and we just said, we're not saying you can't build. We're just saying build them in a way that people are not being harmed. And, and that people should be able to recognize that because we're all living with some kind of zoning ordinance or land use ordinance generally where people are living. So that's where we go. And, it, and it's, the NIMBY argument is simply it's a way of dismissing what we have to say and, and just not want you know, we don't want to hear it. We just don't want to hear it. You just you have a problem with turbines. We get you don't like turbines. That's your problem. We need to save the planet with turbines, and then and move forward. And I'm shut down. We we try to avoid that debate. Yeah, today uh, wind energy still makes up a relatively small percentage of the total uh, grid in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly over the past three decades or so, it's grown quite a bit. I wonder if we could go back to the beginning here and sort of explain the origins of the wind in the industry in the U.S. and its growth over the past uh, two or three decades. So really, it, there was some wind energy built in the 80s. That's a lot of what you see, those old turbines that really span maybe 45 feet tall. They might be a little bit taller. They look like fans. They look like house fans. And there was a push for those. That was about the extent of the, the uh, level of the technology at the time. And this was then again in the early 80s when there was a first effort to start subsidizing these projects, mostly in California. And then that, that pretty much really towards the end of the 80s, so during the Reagan administration, it almost just died out. It almost just, they, they weren't going anywhere. They weren't economical. They were always failing. Um, so there were a lot of issues with the technology and the, the inability to sustain itself without subsidies. Then in 1992, um, that's when the production tax credit was introduced, and that is a tax that is a tax credit based on production. So for every kilowatt 
kilowatt hour of electricity generated by wind project, um, it gets paid a subsidy. And uh, back then, it was 1.5 cents a kilowatt hour. And in that, that generation, th that subsidy to some extent did push wind development, but not a lot. I, I, I want to say by, by the year 2000, uh, I'm g going from memory here, but it, it was le certainly less than 5,000 megawatts in the country. I, I want to say it was closer to like but maybe around 3,000 megawatts. I'm, 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 it was low compared to what we have today, which is 107,000 megawatts. But still, uh, even though the production tax credit was there and projects were being built, they were largely, again, in the west of the Mississippi, California, some of Minnesota, a little in Texas, um, not, not what we see today. And it really wasn't until... And that kind of inched along um, for a variety of reasons, uh, partly due to cost of energy. It was tied to cost of energy as well as the subsidies. It really didn't take off until the Obama administration had gotten in place. So uh, maybe just a little bit before that. By I want to say by 2006, we had about 11,000 megawatts of wind. Again, that's one tenth, or rather, 10% um, of what we have operating today. Um, and then it took off. Then, then it all—it was all about the subsidies at that point. The, the under when the Obama administration passed through his subsidy, his um, stimulus package, the 2009 stimulus package, that set that created a program called the 1603 Cash Grant Program. And basically, that said, for instead of the production tax credit. The developers would be allowed to get a direct cash outlay, outlay from Treasury equivalent to what they would earn through the production tax credit, and it was just a, it was a flat out payment from the federal government that we said, okay, if you and it equal to 30% of their capital cost, and that drove an enormous amount of development, and that was through the period from 2009 to 2012, and then in that time from 2012 on. Turbines started getting bigger, capacity factors started growing, increasing, so they were, every, every individual turbine was producing more electricity than what its predecessor turbine would be. Uh, there was a rush to get as much built as possible, and now um, it's the, it is now at the point where the production tax credit at this point is, you know, the, a full production tax credit, uh, so a project earning the uh, full PTC would get 2.5 cents kilowatt hour, but because the turbines are producing so much, so many more kilowatt hours than they did back in 1992, that 2.5 cents is worth as much as 65% of the capital cost of the project. So what it started out was a very, the PTC was a small component back in 1992, so it really wasn't enough to drive that much and, and capacity factors were very low on the turbines. Fast forward to today, nearly 30 years later, huge turbines, high production, lower cost for building because costs have come down. That production tax credit that we're paying out now is upwards of 65% of the capital cost. So the public is paying for most of the cost of that project, and that's why it's taking why it's taken off, why it's so entrenched at this point, and why. Um, it's, it, it will continue to grow like that.
And certainly at the state level, we've seen renewable portfolio standards also drive some of this with... That is absolutely true. In fact, without the RPS in many places, turbines would not be built at all. So here here in New England, a wind project was recently permitted, and, and because we have really rough land here versus what you might have in the plains in Nebraska and you know Kansas... It's difficult to build here because you're building on a ridge line. It's costly to do the, the demolition and the construction and all of that. So the projects sell here, projects will sell their energy at 8.8 cents a kilowatt hour. Now, you, we're always hearing about, oh, the wind industry is competitive in natural gas. It's down at 2 cents a kilowatt hour. That's not universal. That depends on where the project's built and, and the amount of permitting requirements around getting it built. So, it, so what you have is a project that... No, here in New England, when our, our uh, retail price, or rather our wholesale price of electricity is down in the two to three cents a kilowatt hour, no one in their right mind would buy wind energy. No project would ever get built in New England because of, it's so expensive. They would have to sell, they have to sell it for so much money to make a profit. Even subsidized. That's even with all the subsidies. But the only reason they are selling it is because of the mandates, the renewable portfolio standards, which dictate a what percentage of our our retail electricity has to come from renewables. And because of that, the wind energy is getting built, the solar energy is getting built, and and that is absolutely right. So we're we're forcing a market for a product that generally would not be purchased otherwise. Yeah, and going back to 2015, uh, Congress took steps to roll back the production tax credit. Can you explain how that phase-out period was supposed to take place? Um, I believe 2020 was the original target date for that. Could you just explain the process between 2015 and uh, the end of 2019 and where we currently stand with that phase out. Yeah, absolutely. So, what after so much clamoring from many, many people, particularly going after Senator Grassley from Iowa, who, who likes to call himself the father of the production tax credit, people were saying enough is enough. This, this at that time it was like 24, 25 years. The PTC had been in effect. We were already seeing lots of wind being built. People were saying. The, in, the wind industry itself was saying, we're ready to get off the PTC. You can, we'll fa- phase it out. And this will give us, a, if you gradually bring down the, val- the, the value of the PTC, that will give us a glide path off the PTC, and we will transition to um, um, traditional construction financing for the project. Um, so how it was supposed to work was that in the the, it was a phase down where in 2006, if you started construction of your project in 2006 and had it operational within four years, you would receive full PTC value, which would be the 2.5 cents per kilowatt hour for the first 10 years of operation. And, and je- always the PTC applied to the first 10 years of operation. If you started construction in 2017, it would be 80% of that, which I believe is 1.8, 1.8 cents kilowatt hour. If you started construction in 2018, it would be 60% of that, or 1.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And then in 2019, it will be 40% or 1 cent per kilowatt hour. And then it, if you're after 2019, this past December, any project built after that would receive no PTC. It would be completely sunset. And 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 that was that was the deal. And and Grassley is on record. Senator Grassley from Iowa is on record saying. 
I can't renege on this. I, I told people that wanted me to, in my own constituents who wanted to see this PTC gone, that it will go. If they allowed for, allowed for the phase-out, if everyone agreed to that, I'm not going to stand in the way when it goes away. And what happened was, in December 2019, omnibus com- bill comes up, and <laughs> he completely reneged. Mr. Grassley completely reneged. The wind industry was panicked about losing the PTC. They they just banged on the doors. They parked themselves on, on Capitol Hill, which is what they always do, and and said, "Just give us one more year." So so they got so they did. They got one more year of uh, the PTC. So it now presumably ends in 2020, at the end of 2020. And so, and they increased it back to 60%. So if you are to build your project this year, get your project started, start construction this year, you would have four years, so until 2024, to get your project operational, you would earn 60% of the PTC. And, and all bets are off after this. If they can renege once, they'll renege again. Yeah, we saw back in March then with the onset of the pandemic, the stimulus bill, the wind industry came to D.C. and made a bunch of requests from Congress. So it seemed like already uh, just a few months into the extension, they saw an opportunity for perhaps extending the tax credit even more along with some other things. So uh, just back in March there, what did the, the wind industry ask for? And what did they get? And then since March, um, what developments have there been in terms of uh, the tax credit? Well, okay, so this is is the really frustrating point because I I had been listening to the industry uh, podcast for for the two months leading into March. And everyone knew COVID was happening and there there were concerns about the airline industry, hospitality industry, hotels, and, and restaurants. And then the wind industry was pretty quiet about it. They they were saying that they had that they are they had already addressed their supply channel issue, their concerns about trans uh, transporting equipment and and impacts on the supply chain, especially because of China and the COVID. There there was they had said no when when um, when Trump had instituted the tariffs on uh, wind energy projects. We started diversifying our supply channel, so that really wasn't a problem. So, so leading up to March, the industry was saying, we don't have a problem. We're on schedule to finish our projects by the end of this year, those that, are, those that were started in 2016. And it seemed that everything was fine. But uh, the American Wind Energy Association was telling Congress something very different. They said, we need, we need you, to, you know, in order for the projects to continue, in order for us to meet our deadlines for meeting uh, the in order to get our projects operational before the PTC phases out, we need um, some concessions here. We need you to extend uh, what is called the development window for the production tax credit. And, and let me sit back for a second and explain what that is. Um, when I said that your project had to start construction in 2016 and be operational in four years, that four-year window is not a construct that's built in statute. That four-year window is a construct that was created by the IRS. The IRS, when the when the phase-out started, actually, when the phase-out started, actually predates the phase-out. They didn't. What the IRS was trying to do is per, uh, avoid projects getting started. Let's say in 2016, wait 10 years. They start the construction. They wait 10 years. Pick it up again in 2027. 20, 20, start building and demand the PTC. 
The IRS said, no, we, we are not going to support that. You cannot do that. So the IRS said, if you get, we're going to ask that you show and demonstrate continuous effort towards completion of your project. So if you start in 2016, you have to show that you have to have document that you're making continuous efforts towards finishing your project. And they said, just to make it easier for you, we'll give you four years. If you do it in four years, we're not going to ask for documentation. We trust that you you did everything you can to get the project operational, and and you you didn't kind of sit on it. So here we are, fast forward to 2020, projects that began in 2016 should be wrapping up and finishing this year. Projects that began in 2017 should be wrapping up and finishing next year. Well, the industry said, we can't do it. <laughs> we're we're going to miss our deadlines. We're going to miss our 100%, access to 100% PTC. We need you to increase that development window, which Congress had nothing to do with, by the way. IRS did that. We need you to increase the, the development window by another year. Give us five years instead of four years. And uh, and then they asked for several other asks. One of them being that they worried that the um, uh, since tax since the tax credit is actually ultimately purchased by taxpayers who are investing in these projects, they worried that the taxpayers that they, they there will be a collapse in the market like what we had in 2008 and there will be no tax equity available. So they wanted the, to bring back that cash grant program. Well, Congress couldn't get it done because McConnell, to his credit, and Cruz, to his credit, senators from um, Kentucky and, and Texas, said there's no way this COVID stimulus, this is not about saving the wind industry. That industry is not harmed. So uh, they ended up not getting what they wanted, and then pressure built on the IRS to extend that development window, which they did, but only for projects that began construction in 2016 and 2017. They gave them an additional year. But it was a it, the reason that is so. It's an unbelievable that it was done. If I could say this, Alex, right. was back in 2016 when the industry knew it was dealing with a phase out. It wasn't sitting there worrying about 2020 and the four years it had to get a project operational. It wanted to get as many wind projects started as possible. And and as many wind projects as it could get started, it had an opportunity to complete, maybe completing them in 2020. But many of those projects that got started in 2016 were not going to make the business. There were too many, too many projects too many megawatts that they wanted to install that would actually get built by 2020. So the, and the industry understood this. It knew that there were going to be upwards of 15,000 or better megawatts that wouldn't get built that were started in 2016, and they'd spill over into not being built this year into 2020, spill over into 2021 and have to take a reduction in the PTC, 80% instead of 100%. But when they had this opportunity for this extra one year, they grabbed it. That means all of those megawatts now are going to be 100% PTC, and they get, they're being rewarded for not paying attention to the rules. Yeah. And that's what's a little bit maddening. Certainly. For, for people who are interested in this and are wanting to pay attention now to what happens with it going forward, what elements of, I guess, either Congress or just the, the behavior of the wind industry, what, what are you paying attention to over the next couple of months to see how this all plays out? That's a great question. Well, right now I'm looking at H.R. 2, the Moving Forward Act, which, which was 
pretty much, I think only three Republicans voted for it in the House in, in early July, and otherwise it was 100% Democrats. So it's, it's the Green New Deal. And, and any component of the Green New Deal that they could get through on any legislation, any must-pass legislation, that's what they're going to work towards. Um, so H.R. 2 is an example of what to expect. And, and what does H.R. 2 have in it? A five-year extension of the PTC. No phase-out. Five-year flat-out extension of the PTC at 60% value. It also extends the investment tax credit, which is largely used for offshore wind. Or rather, I'm sorry, not offshore wind. It's um, used for solar. And so big extension there. And, and, and the other parts of it are a, the um, HR2 as a, a goal of 25,000 megawatts of wind, solar, or geothermal being permitted on public lands before 2025. If you can imagine, Texas has about 28,000, 29,000 megawatts of wind. It took decades for that to be built. And, the, and HR2 is calling for 25,000 megawatts of wind, solar, geothermal permitted on public lands by 2025. And in order to get that done, they're looking to significantly reduce rep, uh, access, uh, the requirements under NEPA, to the regulation that governs uh, environmental impact statements and the like. So, so basically, it's it's pulling back. I mean, when you look at environmentalists, they're having a fit over uh, actions by the Trump administration, and I don't agree with them either. But the rolling back of some of the requirements under environmental review on other projects. The Democrats are doing it in Congress, and, and does any, is anyone complaining? Does anyone know? But if that's what gets passed, we can see our public lands, the size of Texas, or the, amount of, the amount of energy, we're, the amount of turbines we're seeing in Texas, public lands all over, filled with turbines, solar panels, and geothermal. That's what we're on the lookout for. That's what we're very worried about, and that's the kind of deal-making that's happening behind closed doors that is not being debated publicly that we can tell. I don't want to take up too much of your time today because I know you are busy, but is there anything that we haven't covered on this topic that uh, you think is important for our listeners? There's just one other thing I want to point out, and, and that is that the, the, renewable en the renewable energy industry, the wind and solar in particular, have spent a, a long time trying to convince people that these projects are safe for wildlife and safe for the environment. And then when they're challenged on it, they come back, well, we're safer than oil and gas and natural and, and uh, nuclear power. But the reality is you cannot build projects this big and not have be extremely detrimental to wildlife. At this point, and when I'm hoping people understand, the science of these impacts is behind the, the deployment of the turbines. So we're trying to play, we're playing catch up and trying to understand what the impacts are when the projects, projects have already been built, they've already been operating, and there are no baselines for understanding what existed in that project area prior to the turbines. So it's a little bit daunting and a little bit scary about how much uh, harm has been done already. And so I, and people need to be aware these are not safe developments for the environment. Yeah, where can people go to find out more about your work there? Well, actually, I'm in the process of building a new, uh, starting a new organization called the Wildlife and Community Coalition. So it's going to be separate from Wind Action, and that our goal in life is to raise awareness around that. I mean, a lot of what Wind Action does has to do with policy, inciting 
for communities, well, we're going to be shifting um, our our emphasis on wildlife and trying to, to bring that forward and raise awareness. So that's one place. Our our website is energywildlife.org. So that's one place, and that's um, unfortunately our traditional environmental groups have not they they have not done a good job of explaining the issues. They have been quite accommodating to the wind industry, and we believe that they haven't been strong enough in making the case. Yeah, they certainly seem to be selective over what sort of projects they want to criticize and which ones they don't. True. Absolutely. Great. Well, I think we'll leave it there. My guest today has been Lisa Linnells. Lisa, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Thank you.